Hey everybody and welcome. I'm glad you're joining us today. We are in number three in our series of the disciples then and now. We're looking at their calling, their convictions, and then we'll be looking at how they are commissioned. And we're going to be examining our own calling too near the end of the series. So in the past weeks, we have had discussed Andrew, that thoughtful, quiet, in the background, Andrew. Many of you may identify with him. And then last week, our lesson was on Simon Peter, who became the rock of the church, but he went through a lot before he got there. He was gregarious and he was spontaneous and he got in trouble a lot and he messed up a lot. And some of you may relate better to Simon Peter. Well, today we are going to look at James and John. So we're going to look at their backstory and how they had their calling. So I'm going to do a little bit of storytelling today. So indulge me in that. James and John were sons of Zebedee and Salome. Now together, they all ran the family business and they caught a fish in the Sea of Galilee. Now, remember that it is a freshwater sea of Galilee, and they caught tilapia, and it's, I think, the only place in the world that contains uh, this tilapia in this uh, freshwater. Um, now, the dad, Zebedee, was a very wealthy man, and so the waters had been good to them, providing them a very successful fishing business. And he hoped that one day his boys were going to take over and they were going to uh, run this fishing business. So, you know, you can imagine that that's how he has life mapped out and that's the big plan for them. Well, John is the younger brother and he was, let's say an average looking person. He had this rugged look, he had a beard and he was an outdoorsman but he was really soft inside and you wouldn't know by looking at him, but he could well up with tears and had this real mushy, soft, sweet inside. Well, when he wasn't on the lake, he was known to go to the place called Bet Shirim and that was the house of life. And it was this small one room synagogue and uh, he would go and he would learn from the Jewish priest, the Pentateuch. Now remember those are the five Book, first five books of the Bible, and he would study there. And he, one day, well, he was kind of preparing for one day when he's going to become this prolific writer. And that's what, he, you know, who would have thought at that point he would? Uh, well, they were Jewish. They were called the people of the book. They loved the Bible. They loved the traditions. And the brothers had been observing their faith since they were born. Now, the laws were written they understood, they studied the law, so they would also have known that there would be a coming Messiah. Well, um, here's how their calling unfolded. One day, uh, when the young men were in their 20s, they were out fishing, as they had been hundreds of times before, and the two of them had heard about this prophet, and that this prophet was kind of wandering through the wilderness, and he was proclaiming that a Messiah was coming. Now, this was not new to them because they knew, they knew the Bible, they knew their scripture. So they were living with expectation of the Messiah. Well, the fact that someone had, uh, was coming was always in the back of their mind. But remember, it had been 400 years since a prophet had lived and been telling about the coming Messiah. 
but they knew from their history. <clears throat> well, they heard then of this man named John, and John had been preaching, repent, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, and so they heard that message, and it resonated with them from their past. Uh, now, here's what John was doing that they thought was a little unusual. He was baptizing those who had become believers in this faith that he was talking about from the coming Messiah. Now, the idea of being immersed was not really new to them because the Jews had ritual baths, and it was called mikvahs. And before making a sacrifice to God, they would go down to the baths and they would clean themselves as a symbol of leaving their sin and their past behind. Well, this seemed to be the same thing the prophet was doing, but he wasn't baptizing in a temple or in a mikvah. He used whatever water he could find, and most of it was uh, rivers. And it would have been like the Jordan River where he would bat was baptizing. So that was different for them. Well, after their nets were cast in the open waters of the Sea of Galilee, I imagine that they were sitting there and they were probably talking about this John the baptizer and they were probably debating, was he this prophet? Could he be the one that's talking about the fulfillment of prophecy that we've read about? And they knew that, that what they had read from Isaiah was one who was crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord making straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. So they must have been talking about that, and they must have been saying, you know, is the Messiah coming soon? Well, one day uh, they had packed their fish and their loaves, and they were headed out to see this guy named John for themselves. Sure enough, there he, wear, he was wearing nothing but animal skin, and he stood in these waters of the Jordan River, and he was preaching to the people on the shore. Well, at the conclusion of one of his sermons, he would always invite people to come into the water and be baptized as a symbol of repentance. So this dirty and crazy looking man was very persuasive and his words would grip the hearts. And so John grew convinced that this really was a prophet and could probably be the last prophet there before the coming of the Messiah. Well, James and John were all in. This was going to be a really important change in their life, and they had to tell their father what they had done and, and becoming baptized and following John because that was going to mean they were going to follow him, and that would mean they would need to give up the fishing business. What is dad going to say? And what about the mother? The mother's going to appear later in their story, and mama is a mother hen, and she is watching over her sons. And what is she going to say? Is she going to be thrilled that they would be following their faith so deeply and looking for the coming Messiah? Was she wanting them to go ahead and explore their dreams? You know, think about the reaction of the parents when these followers uh, began to leave their homes. Well, they did, these brothers went on to become disciples of John the Baptist and they understood their mission. It was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, think about the timing and the age. Growing up near them, somebody who was just a few years younger than them, what, who was really a part of their same generation, was Jesus growing up 
in Nazareth, which was about 20, 25 miles away from where they lived. I love thinking about the parallel lives. All of these disciples that Jesus is going to call were busy with their lives. They were making a living. They were studying the Torah. They were being with family and friends. They were traveling in the same circles. And all the time, God was preparing a way for them to become followers of Jesus. He had a plan and he had a purpose for them. He knew their strengths and he knew their weaknesses and he is going to choose them anyway. And so it's the same for us. We all have these parallel lives running out there, but God is using each of our histories, our past and our present, our strength and our weaknesses uh, to, to get into his kingdom and to do his work in the world. Do you like that? I hope that you will comment about that. God chose then the humble. He chose those who were proud, those who were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were business people, they were loners, some were social people, all kinds of backgrounds. And they didn't need to know everything. They just needed to be willing to follow. And so James and John left dad's business that was familiar to them. And they wandered through the Jordan River in the wilderness of Israel and they were helping John the Baptist preach in the wilderness. They learned from him. They learned his mannerisms. They knew all about when he needed a break, when he needed some food. They were avid followers of him. And so here they knew then when he was preaching, they knew the content was, we're looking for the Messiah. And so look at what he said. We're going to look at John chapter one, verse 35 that John had been preaching, and it says in this passage, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you getting it? Jesus is walking by, the one that John had been preaching about, and he says, look right there, there, look, is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That was a moment those sons, those brothers would never forget. They, John described even the time it happened, the 10th hour of the day, and that would have been about four o'clock in the afternoon. Remember when Jesus saw them looking at him, he said, what are you seeking? Isn't that an interesting question? What are you seeking? Jesus was good at questions, wasn't he? He asked a lot of them. He saw the brothers following and he needed to gauge where they were in their mind and heart. What are you, what are you seeking? What is it that you are looking for? He didn't just look at them automatically and say, okay, they're looking at me. Y'all follow me, come on. Uh, you know, you need to come and I'm gonna tell you the requirements and I'm gonna tell you the benefits package for this job and uh, get, get on board. No, he said, what is it you are seeking? Think about that question. He's asking the same thing of us today. He's saying to each of us, what are you seeking? What is it you want? 
What is it you're looking for? What do you need? It's the same question from 2,000 years ago. And look at how the brothers answered. I thought that was interesting too. They said, well, where are you staying? And asking Jesus this question is that the, two, the brothers didn't expect to talk to him right then. They wanted to know where he was staying. They thought, well, maybe he's busy, he's on his way somewhere, or maybe they needed to get their thoughts together because they were so shocked, but they wanted to know, like, well, where are you? It would be the same for us. Well, you know, we'll come by later. Uh, are you at the Hampton Inn or the Courtyard Marriott? Where are you? Because we'd like to come by. Well, they ended up staying right with Jesus the rest of the day. Jesus invested time in them. Right then, he was available to them. The training started right then. All because John the baptizer looked and said to them, look, there is the Lamb of God. With those two words, the disciples of, of John <clears throat> turned their allegiance toward Jesus. That was the point. That was the purpose. They stayed with him by Jesus' own invitation. And that was at the beginning of a new life for these who were going to become the specific apostles of Jesus. Now they're following Jesus along with the first two disciples, Andrew and Peter. Now we do not read uh, any of that any of these fishermen ever went back to their trade of fishing. But I do want us to look at some examples of stories of James and John that we read through scripture. Let's look at Luke 9 verses 51 through 56. Luke 9 51 through 56. When it came close to the time for his ascension, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead. They came to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his hospitality. But when the Samaritans learned that his destination was Jerusalem, they refused hospitality. When the disciples James and John, known as the Sons of Thunder, learned of it, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? And Jesus turned on them and he said, of course not. I love it. And they traveled on to another village. <clears throat> well, this is just an example of how the brothers related to Jesus. They were so protective of him, weren't they? And they were ready to, to set these people, their town on fire since they did not want Jesus to stay with them once they learned that he was really headed somewhere else. It's good to get into the character of the disciples after Jesus called them and to see their faithfulness. Well, Jesus had to practice a lot of self-restraint, didn't he, when they said, let me just let us set them on fire. Um, you know, he probably, you know, had to really hold it in because he just turned and said, of course not. But he gave them the name. He gave them the name, the Sons of Thunder, because they were at any moment ready to explode and rain down fire. Well, the setting of, of this time is really important uh, because that took place that what we just read we read in Luke we read in Matthew and we read in Mark and what that that scene did was with the timing of that it was the week before the crucifixion and Jesus and his disciples are walking toward Jerusalem 
and those what we see that uh, disciples were it was a critical time in ministry because they were concerned about the political tension of the time and they were really trying to rally behind Jesus and the sons of thunder were really good at that now I want us to look at another situation with the brothers and their mother so here's what we read in Matthew 20 verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, and she asked a favor of him. <laughs> Anybody out there uh, who's a mother and you, you go on behalf of your children to somebody and say, you know, I'd like for you to do a favor. This is what mama was doing. And Jesus says, what is it you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons James and John will sit at your right and that the other is going to sit on your left in the kingdom. Interesting question mama's asking. She wants favoritism shown to her boys, doesn't she? Well, it's easy to criticize her and you know, she's really doing whatever other mamas might do as well. And you can't really blame her for going to Jesus about it. He's the one that could make a difference. She wants her kids to do well and to get ahead. She wants them to have the best seats in the house. She wants them to be the closest. Well, they were really closest to Jesus, actually, along with Simon Peter. Well, many of the commentators even suggest that the mother of the, these boys was also the sister of Mary the mother of Jesus. So she would have had a family connection. So it kind of seems logical that she's playing the family card also. Well, it may be true, it may not, we're not sure. But if so, that made them first cousins to Jesus. And in, in this case, she thought she was just taking care of family members at the time. In any case, uh, it must have been quite an interesting scene. Uh, here comes this mother with the two grown sons in tow. <laughs> And they're already full-fledged apostles. They're probably 25 or 30 years old. And the parallel passage in Mark 10 makes it clear that the boys, the sons, I don't want to call them really boys, their sons, uh, the adult men, had really had the same question in mind. And it sounds as if maybe they had all discussed this. And mother came involved and thought she might be a little bit more, uh, he might be a little more sympathetic with her. And she does kneel before him with great humility and respect. And when she asked the question, well, you know, it's like the rest of us, we want the best for our children. And often we try to fit them into our own molds. And we really need to examine when it's appropriate for us to uh, get, try to get favor for our children and when we need to back off and let them handle their own life. Well, so why shouldn't she go ahead and do this? Um, somebody had to be at the left and right, some of you might be saying, why doesn't it need to be them? Well, it couldn't hurt to ask in advance, some of you say. So it's just an interesting scene and you can look at it in so many different ways to, to, to get the family dynamics, to see how close they were, to try to examine whether or not she had a right to go to Jesus and ask favor. Did they even need it? Uh, why didn't these young men stand up for themselves? Or, it's just interesting to get into little scenes like that and to figure out why these things happened. Well, 
it's it's if you read in other gospels stories it's clear that this really was a recurring controversy that the disciples had all the way until the Lord's Supper, which was the night before Jesus was crucified. No matter really what we think about James and John and their mother, the other disciples wanted those seats as well. Isn't that just human nature? We wanna be close to the leader. If we're dedicated followers, we want to have priority, don't we? They were all very competitive. The basic problem is that James and John underestimated the real cost of following Christ and being in the top, being, being in the chosen 12, being in the left seat or the right seat. It was a huge cost that they were going to pay. They didn't ask for work in the coming kingdom. See, they just asked for a position. That's the difference. They didn't ask for, let, let me go out and do the hard things. I really want to go out and do the worst, the dirtiest, the hardest thing for you, Father. Jesus, Jesus, they would have said. They just wanted position, a place of honor. Well, what is Jesus going to say to this request? And here is how he responded. And we're reading in Matthew 20, verses 22 and 23. You really don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Think about that. Can you really drink this, this burden that I'm going to be dealing with? Well, they said, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. It's not his position. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't play favorites. He, he, he's leaving aside selfish motives for a moment. There's nothing wrong with just the question, but Jesus is saying, you really don't know what you're asking for. You don't know. You don't know what is ahead. And so when he's asking them if they are willing to drink the cup, that he's asking, are you really willing to do the sacrifices? They had no idea what was ahead of them during the week of the crucifixion and following his, his resurrection and following his ascension into heaven. They had no idea of what their life was going to mean. And to just ask for a place of honor was such a naive question when they were really going to be doing very, very hard, hard work in the key, kingdom. And so he says, you know, it's going to cost you a lot. And he, he, he's, he says, you're going to have to give up everything. And, the, and then they did, they had to walk away from their professions. They had to walk away from family relationships. But there is a moment where we see what these disciples were really willing to do when we look at them at the crucifixion. And I want us to look specifically at John to see what he was willing to do once he understood after Jesus went through the, the week of the crucifixion and he went through the death and the burial and, uh, and uh, resurrection, his life was going to change forever. So look at this moment at the crucifixion. Um, we see that, that, Jay, that Jesus is going to ask John, really tell him to take care of his mother. 
He said, I'm giving her to you. This wasn't a discussion. It wasn't up for negotiation. We see that discipleship was going to infringe on every aspect of their life, their personal life, their professional life. And part of John's service to the Lord was loving and care for, caring for Jesus' mother after Jesus died. And John tells us in his writings that from that moment on, he cared for Mary. Uh, when I was able to go to uh, Patmos, where John wrote uh, the, the Revelation, um, you can see that there was a, a, a place that was tri attributed to Mary, and it was a beautiful place that, that, you know, he had taken her wherever he went and cared for her. You know, we also don't really get the boundaries around what it means to follow Jesus and the full sacrifice of following him. It is an all-or-nothing proposition. He doesn't say, you know, just come in part way. Just give me part of your life. You know, when Jesus, we invite in him into our life, which is what we do when we become his follower, when we become his disciple, it is comprehensive. It is all, it is all of our devotion in every aspect of our lives that we are giving him. And these two brothers became great examples of how to follow Jesus. And so after Jesus died and he's buried and he's resurrected and John now is in charge of Jesus' mother, we see that new work begins for them. And new work begins in those days after uh, the, uh, Jesus is resurrected and before the Pentecost when he uh, go, ascends into heaven. And so what the brothers did is they began preaching. That is where they picked up the ministry and began to really go hard with it because they knew they had to get the word out. And so here's what became of them. James stayed in Jerusalem to preach about Jesus. And even though it was very dangerous then because Jesus had resurrected and that created chaos among the Romans and among the Jews who were living there. But that's where James chose to stay and he did his ministry there. He was soon arrested and he was put to death. And this was around 44 AD. And so uh, that would have been not quite 10 years after Jesus died uh, and uh, was resurrected. Some people confuse this apostle James with the author of the book of James, but that James was the half brother of Jesus. And he was a skeptic before Jesus resurrected. And after that, he became a, a follower. He became uh, his, dedicated his life to Christianity. And see, only a few of the apostles actually wrote books in the New Testament. And James, the son of Zebedee, was not one of them. But his brother, John, was an author of five of the books. But now James, at his death, uh, he was had a tragic end. He was beheaded, and he, we find in the uh, book of Acts in chapter twelve, we read in the first uh, in the first verse there about this time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so the, he is, James is the first one who became a martyr for his faith. And so that was a tragic end to his life, but he stayed faithful, this son of thunder. Now both uh, John and Jesus had this very special relationship. And in John's writings, you might recall that he identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's really apparent that John felt this closeness with, with the Lord that changed this son of thunder. And one of the most prominent themes in his books is the topic of love. He authored the most famous and important verse about love. And it is in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes on him is not going to perish, but he's going to have everlasting life. See, that came from this John, uh, who, uh, instead of wanting to rain down fire on people who didn't like Jesus, he was preaching a message of love. Well, John wanted us to understand what love is, and he spent a lot of time in his writings helping us to understand. Look at what he says in John 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God. So you want to know what it, it means to really love God is that we keep his commandments. That's what he said. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That right there tells us that it's an all-in proposition. We keep what he says to do. Uh, then we want to kind of look to see about his death and there are different theories about it. The most plausible one says that John was arrested in Ephesus, and so that's in Turkey, so he's traveled quite a bit, and he faced martyrdom when his enemies threw him in, in this horrible, huge basin of boiling oil. Wow, but according to what we read in tradition, John was miraculously delivered from this death. And authorities then sentenced John to slave labor from the mines of Patmos. And on the, this is an island right there at the Aegean Sea. It's right um, in the area of Greece and Turkey. And they sentenced him to, um, to go there to live. Uh, that, so he was in isolation there. And that is where John had the vision of, of Jesus Christ and wrote the prophetic book, The Revelation. And so see, even in that, even in a death sentence, God was still using him and John was still faithful. And I remember going there and going to his home and looking at this desk where he wrote and it was this desk where he would sit up high on a stool and he would handwrite, of course, all the words to that prophecy. Well, the apostle John was later freed possibly because of his old age, and he did return to Turkey, and he died sometime after AD 98. And so he was a, a really older person, wasn't he, for that time? Well, James and John were known as pillars of the early church. The early church represents the most successful movement in human history. Wow. Those men and women of the early church propelled Christianity forward. 
But the earliest Christians could never have survived this outside opposition they were experiencing and all of the internal strife they were dealing with without the power and the presence of Christ. That's what helped them to continue moving forward in ministry. The early church succeeded because they were committed to Christ. They were all in. If there's ever another time in history where Christians need to be all in, it is now. Oh, how many of you agree with that? Isn't it true, the strife that we're experiencing and that we're feeling? This is true for the modern church. And so here, here are some of my closing thoughts. We cannot resist the crushing pressure of our present culture. We can't resist it unless we let Jesus strengthen us. Unless we turn it over to him, it will be hard for us to resist the pressures that we experience. We cannot set aside our many differences for the sake of unity unless Jesus Christ joins us together. That is what it is going to take. We want to do as the early followers of Jesus did, and we want to make a difference in the current culture because what's happening is our Christian culture is going to be canceled if we don't. What are your thoughts about that? We are going to get left behind if we do not unite together with Jesus Christ to keep the church moving forward, to keep the church strong. John uh, wrote three letters, and they focus on making a difference in the world. I encourage you to go and, and read uh, John, uh, his, his three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And, and what he's doing is he is showing the world at that time how to love Christ. I want us to look at his plea. It's found in 1 John 3, verse 18. He says, children, <laughs> I love that, that he is just reaching down and calling us all children. Children, you show love for others by truly helping them. Mm, let's just think about that. That's how you love others, by truly, let's not leave that word out, by truly helping others and not by merely talking about it. Wow, isn't that faith in action? Let's do as those sons of thunder did. See, according to John, he says that love is not just simply a talking point of Christianity. It's not simply a trait of Christian living. It defines what it means to be a Christian, to love. That is a verb, to love. That's what it means in this world to show love to others. Here's what he also told us, told us in 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What's our life like today? On a daily basis, moment by moment, are we extending love? Are we showing it? Are we feeling it? You know, and, and I've said so many times before, we should not make decisions on how we feel. See, love is an action. Love means actually doing things. 
And that's how the Sons of Thunder ended up living. From that call there at the Sea of Galilee, as they followed John the Baptizer and were willing to follow then this Messiah that, that John the Baptizer had preached about and being all in. And they had their ups and downs and they made mistakes in their ministry and they wanted to be number one. But in the end, they were full of love for Jesus Christ. You know, the world is going to know us by how much we love. That is the mark. That's what we've learned here. It's the indicator of Christianity, how we are loving others. It reminds me of that beautiful little praise song that says, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Today, let's love well. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so loved us that you sent your son to die for us. That is a beautiful display of love. You didn't just talk about it. You didn't just let authors write about it. You just didn't let them just go out there and make us think things were going to happen. No, you acted and you showed love and that's what you're asking us to do. And we thank you for those words in scripture that tell us that to love God means to do, follow his commandments and to love others. Let that be our thought today as we go out and love well. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Oh, let's love well. See you all next week.